0: And today we continue our study through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 4, and uh, the title of our study is an evening psalm. Would you go ahead and please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true, and that it, it, it not only speaks to the the issues of our hearts into the issues of our day but but lord that that your word is clear and that it's binding on our lives we can take your word to the bank and so lord i i pray that as we look at this great text that that we would take your word and hide it into our hearts that that we might dwell on it, that we might linger on it, uh, that it that it might that it might set our our hearts and our minds ablaze with the glory of Christ revealed in the Scriptures. And Lord, I, I pray that the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in Your sight, O oh God. That that we that You. We might use your word to refine us, to purify us, to cleanse us. And Lord, may our response be confession. May, may our response be to find our rest in you alone who grants us peace. So, Lord, we thank you that you are the God of peace and that you have sent forth Christ the King to pay the penalty for us in our place and for our sin. And so we thank you, Lord, for your great grace and your mercy. And for the help that we find only in Christ alone. Help us, Lord, as we open your word now, to consider what it has to say from Psalm 4. Use it in our lives, Lord, to Draw us closer to you that we might worship you and adore you all the more. We might be filled with a sense of awe and wonder at at the God who gives us peace through Christ our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 4. Psalm 4 says this To the choir master. With stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies to law? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. in safety. This is the reading of God's precious holy word. It's tempting to seek a historical setting for Psalm 4 just as for Psalm 3, but there's little justification for this. The setting for this for Psalm 3 is indicated by the title A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. And when we study that psalm, I explained that the setting indicated that the title should be taken literally if for no other reason than the title is part of the canonical Hebrew text. But we also need to say that this setting is not the same in Psalm 4. The title says, for the director of music with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Now, despite this, a number of commentators link the psalm with the one preceding and therefore carry the setting of Psalm 3 over to Psalm 4. Charles Spurgeon and Franz Delzitz assume the connection. H.P. Leupold argues it as follows. To refer the psalm to the days when David fled before Absalom certainly fits the words of the psalm in a number of striking ways. The Author is obvious in distress; his honor is assailed. He seeks to set his erring son and those that err with him aright. A paternal type of admonition is used, such as David might well have used over and against the rebel son. And lastly, the author manifests a courageous faith, such as is often noted in the life of David. And now, these connections between the psalm and between David's flight from Jerusalem are tenuous. In some cases, they're even questionable, we need to understand. But the chief reason for doubting that Psalm 4 has to do with David's flight is that the problems in the two are quite different. The problem at the the time of David's flight from Absalom reflected in Psalm 3 was one of physical danger thousands of troops had aligned themselves against David. He needed God to be his shield against three armed enemies. But we need to understand that this is not the problem of Psalm 4. In this psalm, the problem is one of malicious slander and lies. It is the psalmist's reputation rather than his person that is being attacked. And what he needs is a sense of the presence and the approval of God rather than physical deliverance. Earlier in our study of Psalm 1, I mentioned that scholars speak of various types or genres of psalms, pointing out that there are perhaps seven in all. And these seven genres are usually referred to as hymns, laments, psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of confidence, psalms of remembrance, wisdom psalms, and kingship, possibly messianic psalms. Psalm 4 can be classified in two ways. It's perhaps seen as a combination of the two genres— it is a psalm of individual lament, but it's also a psalm of confidence. In fact, it moves from one to another, from distress to quiet confidence in the Lord. Craigie says, It's, it's not a psalm of penitence arising out of the recognition of sins committed, but uh, there are other psalms for that purpose. It is rather a psalm which reflects the anguish of the, the innocent and the oppressed or the righteous sufferer. And thus, it is a particularly important kind of psalm. It, it, it addresses a fundamental human experience, he says, the experience of the unjust, the suffering, and of oppression. Is there such thing we need to ask as a totally righteous sufferer? Is anyone ever really innocent? The answer is, of course not, unless we're thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the way some scholars have interpreted Psalm 4. But that's not the point that the psalmist is making here. None of us is ever utterly innocent, but there are nevertheless times of relative innocence in which evil people do they do uh, heap injustices on us, and there are times when we're falsely accused. At, at other times, we are slandered. Some someone may even want to advance himself by by getting us out of the way, or an attack may be occasioned by pure envy. When a citizen of Athens was asked why he had, he had voted for the condemnation of Arstes called the Just, he was one of the most outstanding statesmen that nation has ever produced. The citizen replied, I voted against him simply because I was tired of hearing him called the Just. Perhaps you've experienced something like this. I, I'd be surprised. If living in a fallen world, if you hadn't, all of us are slandered at one time or another. All of us have had our reputations attacked. Although the attacks you probably have not been accompanied by actual physical danger, they nevertheless hurt. When we were children and our friends and playmates a nasty things about us, were are taught to say sticks and stones may, can break my bones, but names will never hurt me. But it's not true. The names really do hurt to be falsely accused. Is agony, and we have to rise above it. But how? How do we rise above it? This in this psalm, David, the target of many false accusations, shows us how. The psalmist here fall. The psalm falls into three parts. First, there's an urgent plea to God for help in distress. In verse 1, this is real distress. It requires genuine relief. David needs an answer from God, which is why he is praying. Second, there is a moving uh, movement here addressed to the psalmist's enemies in verses 2 through 5. In these verses, David shows a surprising kind of attitude to his enemies and gives advice that would not only solve his difficulty— it's also going to help him. His enemies would become different people if they were to do what he advises. And third, there is a final expression of the psalm, the security in God in verses 6-8. through eight. And this enables him to say in verse 8, I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, our Lord, make me dwell in safety. It's, this is why this psalm is called an evening psalm. We're going to study this psalm in this three-part outline, but I need to say at the outset what is important about this psalm is not the outline given to it, but rather what happens to the psalmist as he prays. And what happens is that as he prays, he changes. He moves from anxiety because of his accusers to quiet trust in God, which is to say in modern language that prayer helps him. It does him good. I remember a conversation with a dear friend in his office. He was a pastor at a previous church that I was at. And he said, I was dealing with this difficult person. And he said, Dave, pray for him. And I said, jokingly, of course, I said, no, I'm not going to pray for him. On the way home, of course, I prayed for him. And when I got home, I, I texted my pastor and told him, look, I, I, I prayed for him on the drive home. I just want you to know, you know. And he's like, thanks. He knew that I was going to pray anyway. But the point is, is as I kept praying for this difficult person that in this small group I was leading, what, what ended up happening? What ended up happening was my heart was changed. And then as I started and my perspective towards this person was changed. And even, even as I kept doing this and have now for many years, it helps. You see, if we're to honestly be honest with ourselves, most often, and this is just for my experience, most often the difficult person isn't that person that I'm having difficulty with. The difficult person that that I'm dealing with is really myself. It's the person that I'm looking at in the mirror. Now, some of you may not like that. We We don't like to think of ourselves in this in this way but we have to assess ourselves rightly and biblically in fact the bible tells us to examine ourselves in 2 Corinthians we are to examine ourselves in light of Christ i remember in an interview one time with michael horton he said that our theology should drive our prayer lives not our prayer lives drive our theology. What what he's saying here is really, really important. And it's what is gonna get at the heart of our discussion today. Our theology coming from God's Word should inform our prayer lives, and it should inform every part of our lives. It's not just that we pour out our petitions to the Lord, our 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 knees, our requests, our Intercession for others—we're to do all those things, but our prayer lives and every part of our lives is to be informed by the Scripture, fueled by the Scripture, and that's that's my point about this. That's this is what the psalmist does. What happens is he does this; as he prays, he changes. He moves from anxiety because of his accusers to trust and confidence in God. It does him good. All of us have had the experience of being accused, of being anxious, and maybe even depressed, maybe even regularly. Craigie is right. There are days in the lives of all humans which require a psalm like this at the end. I want to, we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about this at the end, but You know what, I often go to verse 8 at the end of a difficult day, and I'll just open my Bible, and I'll just read it and read it and read it again until I really believe it. And what this does is over and over and over and over again, I'm reminding myself of this truth, which says, I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety and i'll make this point again at the end but i'll make it now as well biblical meditation is is taking in the truth of god's word into our hearts into our minds and chewing on the text again and again and again until our affections are stirred until we can tell ourselves the truth and we know it to be true not just in our heads but in our heart in our the reality of our experience and by the way this isn't just self-actualization this isn't just you know contemplating things out of nowhere we are to focus on the scriptures that's what biblical meditation is we don't empty our minds and and think happy thoughts we Focus on what the Scripture says. We chew it again over and over and over again, and this helps inform and shape not just our prayer lives, but our thought lives, our, all of our lives. Moving on now to the rest of our text. Whom do you turn to when you hear of an unjust accusation that someone has been making against you? You're at work. Maybe the secretary down the hall stops you and asks, Do you know what so-and-so said about you yesterday? And then she tells her story. Perhaps even, you know, I'm embellishing it a little bit. Or a business associate circulates a memo in which you are pictured in an unjust, unflattering light. What do you do? What do you—whom do you tell? How do you deal with us? Well, most of us would go to our friends, we'll complain, we'll look for sympathy. We might even start a slander or a campaign of our own. It might go, well, the only reason she said that is because she... But our text says that David doesn't do this. Instead of turning to friends for sympathy or people to be on our side or even attacking his enemies, David turned to the Lord saying, answer me when I call to you. Oh, my righteous God, give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. David knew that his only help was in the Lord, which is strikingly here is, is where the psalm ends. The, the last words of the psalm say in verse 8, You alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. First, David's appeal is very honest. He, If David were presenting his case before some other person, he might have pretended to be something he was not. That's what we probably all do. We would pretend that we're less affected by the attack than we, than we were. We would try to keep up appearances. We want to put our best foot forward. But David is coming here to the God who knows his heart, and, and he knows that God knows him. So he doesn't play pretend. He knows that God knows the situation perfectly, and thus he doesn't need to keep up appearances. David just tells it like it is. And he indicates that his enemies are significant men, not people who can be safely ignored. This is implied by the Hebrew words ben-ish, rather than the more common ben-adam. And again, is deeply distressed by their action. And the next verse describes what's happening here. His enemies are dishonoring him by ruining his reputation, turning his glory into shame. And why are they doing this? Is it because they love lies or delusions and are opposed to his religious convictions? They seek false gods? Do you know the advantage of coming to God with your troubles? This is a very important point because to come to God means that you do not need to play pretend. You can tell them exactly how you feel. In fact, you should. We see this all over the Psalms. David does this brilliantly. He knows that God knows already. We know from Scripture that that God sees our hearts. He knows the motivation of our hearts. And not only does he know the motivation of your hearts, Scripture tells us that he knows the thoughts that we have before we even think them. And this that god has full knowledge of, of not only our the real state of our hearts but he knows everything about us we may know just a sliver about ourselves or even about other people but god has full knowledge in fact not only of our present situation god has Full knowledge of our future. Now, some people chafe at this idea that, that God has not only present knowledge of our lives, but also of our futures. But remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about the one who formed the cosmos, the one who governs them, who sustains them. and then And then we're also talking about the one who gave you life and breath, who Fashioned you in your mother's womb, and who gave you life and breath, and who continues to give you life and breath. He's the one who knows the hairs on your head, and he knows the length of your days. And so, we should not chafe at the idea that God not only knows our presence, he knows our future. He knows the beginning of time, he knows the middle of time, he knows the end of time, he knows all time, period. And, and this is why what I said earlier about David not playing pretend, not, not having a facade is so important for us today. We might think, oh, you know, there's some part of my life that dishonors God, and so I don't need to bring that to him because, you know what, it doesn't really matter anyway. I'm going to do whatever I want. But Christian, that's not Christian liberty. That's actually living a lawless life, and lawless living dishonors God. Even as a Christian, Hebrews tells us very clearly that God will discipline you, because a parent, a parent who sees their child erring and going the wrong way when 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 they have instructed them in the clear path to go. If you're a good parent, you don't want your child to go. Off into and, and do whatever they want to do. You want them to go the right way. You want them, you've taught them the right values and you've given them the right foundation. And so you want to, them to walk in the right path. God in His Word uses this example of, of, and we talked about it in Psalm one, of the two ways for this very reason. Because there is a way that seems right to man. But there is a way that leads to life, and that life is the path of the righteous found only in the righteousness of Christ. And that is so important. In fact, I'll say it this way. If you've been made righteous because on account of of the righteousness of Christ, you know that you don't need to play pretend anymore. You don't need to pretend that it, everything is okay when it's not. You know that, that that when you are experiencing grief and hurt and pain, you're not just to stuff it down and pretend that all is okay and put on a mask and play pretend with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Because Galatians 6.1 tells us, and it's not an option, it's a command flowing from the great commandment which is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our mind and our soul. In Galatians 6.1, Paul says, to bear our burden. We are to bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the great commandment there. So to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul. When you and I are hurting, when you and I are struggling, when you and I are in pain, we... We need the Lord. We need to call out to the Lord. We need to first, just to be clear, we need to go to the Lord ourselves. And then when, as we go to the Lord in prayer, we should go to one another. I'm not dismissing the one another aspect. I'm saying first and foremost, we should go to God. God knows our hurt, our pain. He sees it fully. He knows it. And so this is, why, this is why even in Hebrews 4, 16, we are invited, we are summoned to this throne of God's grace because we have a Savior who is unlike us. We are sinners by nature and by choice, and yet we're also, as Christians, redeemed. Now, Martin Luther called this justice El at the same time saint and sinners, or simultaneously saint and sinner, if you will, however you prefer that. But the point is, is that we, yes, have been declared not guilty. We are justified, we are adopted, we're forgiven, we're loved, we're a part of the beloved as as His children. And yet, we still have remaining sin. We have yet to be like Christ. And so we need to take our hurt, our struggles, our pain to the Lord this is what david is david is doing here he's taking his hurt his pain to the one who knows and the one who can provide relief before he goes to others and we need to remember this we'll need to remember this as we dig into the psalms especially the difficult and precatory psalms the most interesting part of this psalm is the second section, verses 2 through 5, in which David relates to those who are harming him. They're wrong. He's right. He's asking God to help him. And nevertheless, so thus slandered and injured by them. David speaks of his enemies kindly, and he tries to win them from their errors. And there is this. In trying to help them, he unintentionally but inevitably helps himself. And we see how this works in verse 3 of Psalm 4 in this Verse, David reminds his enemies of a truth that is very important, namely that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. This is something that the enemies of the righteous do not want to hear. It refers to election, which they hate. In David's case, the statement was a reminder that he had become king by the sovereign choice of God himself, not by man's authority. Therefore, he could not be attacked with impunity. His enemies would have resented that a great, great deal. But in our case, the statement is a reminder that we have been brought into the company of God's people by God's choice and by God's action and not of our own. That too is a doctrine widely hated today, but it is true. And it follows from the truth of election that if God has set apart the godly for himself, he will obviously not abandon them. He will stick by them for Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work, and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The ungodly need to be reminded of this, because it means that their attacks upon God's people will not ultimately be successful. Well, how does this help David in this way? As soon as he's reminded his enemies that the Lord protects his people, David must have realized afresh what he was telling his enemies applied also to him he was one of the people of God. God set him apart, and he would not abandon him. And he says in the second half of the same verse, the Lord will hear me when I call to him. Do you see how it's working? David began here with a real cry of real anguish, saying, answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me, And hear my prayer. And now, having reminded his enemies that God cares for his own, David turned to what began as a prayer into a statement of confidence. The Lord will hear me when I call him. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that because of Christ, because of his person and work, that God will, in fact, hear you when you pray? Do you believe that God hears our prayers on account of Christ? Because it, that statement is a biblical idea. Do you know that, that the reason during, during the Old Testament, for example, the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to put on the ceremonial garb, be ceremonially and ritually clean, before he could enter into the most holy place. And that was only once a year. We know that because of Christ, that, that veil has been torn. And this once and for all sacrifice Accomplished by the, none other than the Lord Jesus is offered for forgiveness and pardon for sinners. And this is why Hebrews 4.16 says that we can approach this throne of grace 24-7 because of union with Christ. And because of this, we can say that the Lord does cure us on account of, of Christ. Do you believe this? Are you confused by attacks against you today? Go through David's procedure, and your and your thoughts remind yourself that God will take care of you, and you will find that the very act of reminding yourself will strengthen your own confidence. It will quiet your distress by this exercise. Too often, we're driven by our feelings. We let our feelings dictate our, our thoughts. Instead of submitting our feelings, our emotions, our circumstances to the Word of God and saying, Lord, this is what your Word says. I believe it, and that settles it. I'm submitting to your, to your will. We're doing what 2 Corinthians 10 tells us, to take every thought captive into the obedience of Christ. This is where biblical meditation helps us. It helps us to think on what, is, what Paul says in Philippians 4, what is pure, what is noble, what is good. This is what it does. In it, it, Romans 12, 1 through 2 way, it helps the word renew. Biblical meditation in Paul's word helps renew our mind. And by the way, that's what the Spirit wants to do. He wants to take the word that you hear and that you study, that, that you hear preached even. And he wants to take it and drive it further and further and further into your heart, into your heart life that it, that it will take up even more residence there and and out of it that that you'll you'll tell others of the glory of Christ this is why Charles Spurgeon speaking of of uh John Bunyan said of uh, Bunyan that Bunyan bleeds bubbling, that meaning that Bunyan was so his his heart and his life was so saturated by the scripture that what came out of his thoughts out of his heart was scripture can the same be said of you today can can you be said of you that what comes out of you if someone pricks you if somebody was to walk alongside you during the day is what they see oozing out of your life the word of god David himself benefited by the way he expressed concern for his enemies, and it occurs again in the psalm's second half. It grows out of David's advice for them in verses 4 through 5. But verses 4 is a bit of a problem. There are two ways the words, in your anger, do not sin, can be interpreted. The first is the meaning given to the words in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and then picked up by the Apostle Paul and quoted in Ephesians 4.26. six. It is It says, be angry, but do not let your anger carry over into sinful acts. Now, Paul means this because his next words in Ephesians are, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. That is, deal with your problem in the anger stage. However, the verb be angry can also mean tremble, which is the way H.P. Liphold takes it. Tremble in what way? Well, it could mean tremble in anger, which is what most versions use the word anger to translate it. But but it could also mean tremble before God, which is what Leipold thinks it means. That is, stand in awe of God because you are in awe of Him. See sinning as you have been doing. Well, this makes good sense in this psalm, but for the thought then would be, the evil you are planning should be abandoned because God is against you in it. You should be able to see this when you are upon your beds, searching your hearts diligently. I do not know which is the right answer, but... We should be, I'm inclined to think that the second view is right because of what comes next. Verse 5 says, offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. These sacrifices are sacrifices for sin. And so verse 4 does not mean deal with your anger and do not sin, but rather tremble before God and cease from the sin you're committing. And it would follow f- from the letter that having recognized the sin as sin, the enemies of the psalmist would then offer sacrifices of atonement for it. And the final step for them would be to live as those who trust in the Lord rather than in their own devices. And were David's enemies likely to follow his advice, tremble before God, offer sacrifices for their sin, and begin to trust the Almighty, it was not very likely. It was not even likely that David would have liked to have spoken to his enemies but probably did not have the chance to utter anything. But here's the important thing. Although his enemies did not come to trust God, David did. He trusted God in the past. He had laid before him the grief over the false accusations of his enemies. And now God provided the peace he was seeking by doing these things. The next thing is God assured him of his favor in verse 6. In their distress, the people around David were asking, who can show us any good? In their opinion, there was nothing good about their circumstances at all. But God brought to David's mind the well-known Aaronic Blessing of Numbers 6, 24-26, which says this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. He remembers it in an abbreviated form in verse 6. And thus He was reminded that the one who had shown Him good in the past can be counted on Him to show Him good again even God himself. In fact, God filled him with joy greater than the joy of those reaping an abundant harvest. In verse 7, joy floods our hearts when we're conscious of what the Lord is doing in and through us. In verse 8, God gave him peace even in the midst of his situation. This is the final blessing that came to David as he tried to help those who were his enemies. As Craig says, at the end, this psalm has, has seen that he is better off than his adversaries. He has advised them to lie still on their beds in an attempt to curtail their evil. But he could lie on his bed and sleep the p- sleep at peace, which came from God. It's always this way. You see, if we leave our problems with God, we will, he will shoulder them and he will enable us to sleep in peace. And this is the reminder that this psalm this gives us. So, uh, as Michael Horton I, told me in an interview, Our theology should drive our prayer lives, and I'll go further. It should drive all of our lives. We must submit our hurts, our feelings, our grief, our pain, our anxiety, our troubles to the Lord. And this is what verse 8 reminds us to do, to, before we sleep, uh, do what John Calvin used to do. There's a story that Calvin would run down the list of his activities and He would recount them in his journal. And then then he would confess any known sin that he had committed and commit that to the Lord and repent of it and trust himself to the grace of God. What this does is it keeps short accounts with the Lord. It keeps things before the it keeps our fellowship with God open and free. But it also, verse 8, what it does has helped me with is it helps to set our hearts on the Lord. We all have difficult days that are, that are very, very challenging. Make no mistake about it. If you've never had one, in this life you will have one, if not many, if not more. And I'm, and I'm genuinely sorry for that. There have been times when I've cried myself to sleep at night, especially in my teenage years over my parents' divorce. There's been times when I've I've cried most of the day, quite a lot, on and off. And I have to remind myself of the hope that I have in Christ. This is why we need to take our hurts and cares to the one who knows our past, he knows our present, he knows our future, the one who made the cosmos, the one who Created this the stars, the one who made us and fashioned us in our mother's womb. Oh yes, he knows us. He knows us, but it, he, he not only knew us so knows us so well, but he knows the extent to which we may sin. And this is why he sent forth Christ on that rescue mission to pay the penalty for us in our place and this is so important to say because the author says that that he will lie down in peace the only way for us to have peace is because of the prince of peace he has come he has come under the sentence of death to pay the penalty that we justly deserve remember this is the 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 one who created the cosmos he upholds the stars and the universe by the word of his power and he came down as a baby in a manger to pay the penalty that we justly deserve and to be buried and to rise again i don't know about you but that that thought just blows my mind he knows us and because of christ he loves us and that's the reason that you and i we have the peace of God. Romans 5.1 tells us that, that we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only this, but, but this peace is being through the Holy Spirit. Paul says in, in Philippians 4, it, it's becoming more real in our experience. And this is the very reason that he says in verse 8 that, that we aren't to be anxious. In fact, this whole teaching is, it centers on the sufficiency of Christ revealed in the Scriptures. The reason that we can't be that we're not to be anxious, the reason that that we're that we're to take things to the Lord, that we're to practice the things in verse 9 that he says and be content in him, finding our rest and our joy in him, is because Christ has been revealed in the scriptures and this is why we can find joy in him. This is why because of Christ we and in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives Verse 13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not because of I, it's not because of me, it's because of Christ. Christ is sufficient, and His sufficiency is amazing. He's sufficient in His person, He's sufficient in His work, and that's good news. That means that As we lie down to sleep, we might not know if we might ever wake up again. We might not know if our family members would ever wake again. But we lie down and sleep, trusting the one who ordered the cosmos, who orders the cosmos, who governs the cosmos, who upholds the cosmos, who upholds our very lives. And it helps us to lie down, knowing in peace that we do so, because of Christ and with full confidence that He is sovereign over our lives. He knows the length of our days, He knows how long they'll last, and so we can trust Him. It's such an idea. What it, what it does, verse 8 does, is it helps us to remind ourselves again and again. And as Psalm 1 talks, as we talked about with Psalm 1, how we talk to ourselves does matter. And this is where biblical meditation comes in. It reminds ourselves, this is the Lord. We lie down because of the Lord. And we trust the Lord in our sleep. And But this is what biblical meditation does. It sets our hearts on the Lord, and not on ourselves, not on our circumstances, but on the Lord who knows us the Lord who sees us and the Lord who cares for us because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded, instructed today about the reason that we have peace and that the reason that we can lie down in and sleep in peace is because you are the God of peace. We were once at war with you and yet, You came on a rescue mission to pay the penalty for us in our place and for our sin, to be buried and to rise on the third day. And yet you also, a soon returning king, and yet we're reminded there that you are the king who knows our past, who knows our present, and you know the future. So, Lord, help us to take our hurts, take our pains, take our struggles with confidence in the one who, as David says, hears our prayers because of Christ. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray, Lord, for those who do not yet know you, that they might come to the knowledge of a God who sees their past, who knows their presence, and who knows their future, and who desires for them to be reconciled with you. So we thank you, Lord, for the gospel. We thank you for the hope and hope And pray, Lord, that we would be reminded and stirred by way of reminder and instruction. And may this lead us to worship of the God and the King who alone saves and who alone satisfies both now and always and forever. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.